Welcome to the Boundless Book Club from the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai. I am Annabelle. And I am Andrea. And I'm also super excited because psychologist and relationship expert Tai Tashiro is also joining us today to talk about some of his insights into the science of happily ever after, which happens to be the title of his first book. So relevant, in fact, it was even reprinted last year. But first, let's skim the history of modern love. Yes, like an archaeologist. I have done some digging into the history of love. Back in ye olden days, pairing up in marriage was, as we all know, for practical reasons, but then it was transformed in the 1800s by romanticism and the old system of marrying for political or economic advantage crumbles and feelings push practicality to the side. It was quite scandalous at the time, but it sticks. And today we are all about the feelings. So talking about modern love, Annabelle, could you tell us about your book? Yes, I can. So for a podcast about modern love, I couldn't think of anything more modern than Love Marriage by Monica Alley. It was published at the beginning of the month. We were really excited about reviewing it on our first uh, episode. We talked about how everyone was looking forward to it coming out. So it's published just at the beginning of this month. And it's been 10 years since Brick Lane came out, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. So a lot of expectations for this book and it 100% delivered Uh, I absolutely loved it. And I've spoken to so many people in the office who cannot stop raving about it. And I'm mentioning that because of all the people that I've spoken to, we all have very different tastes in what we like reading outside of the office and what we naturally gravitate to. And the fact that so many different people with different tastes have said, this is an amazing book with incredible characters, I think speaks volumes. It's set in modern day UK. Yes, it's about love and yes, it's about marriage. That's kind of what it says on the tin. But it's also about so many other kinds of relationships and the complications that come with them. When two very different families are forced to interact with each other and they come from completely different worlds. So I was looking at interviews and Monica actually said that the book is ultimately about love and marriage and what those things mean across generations and cultures. And she goes on to say that it's also about the psychology of relationships. So I'm really looking forward to asking Dr. Tashira about some of those aspects of the book later on. But who is getting married and who are these characters? So the story centers around the Guramis, who are a Bengali Muslim family. You have Yasmin, who is a trainee doctor. She's 26. She's engaged to fellow Dr. Joe Sangster. He's handsome. He's amazing. Their relationship at the start of the book seems kind of perfect. His mum, Harry, which is short for Harriet, is a renowned feminist writer struggling to write her memoirs. And as the novel progresses, you see that she's able to grasp and articulate really complex political and cultural issues, but she struggles herself with the concept of things like personal boundaries. I think you've started this. You have some, you have some thoughts on Harriet. I love Harriet. She's such an enigmatic character. And she's also the sort of person that we quite often meet at least a few times in life and then would really like to be in their orbit. Those types of people are so popular and so far removed from us normal people. Yeah, I can see what you mean. Like occasionally you'll meet one of these people, maybe at a dinner party. They'll be 
like these really outspoken eccentric seeming types but I, I get the impression I don't know about you but I found Harriet was a really compelling character but I couldn't sit with her for too long because she was just so intense and so oblivious sometimes to things that it just became so frustrating to read she has traits that are admirable on the one hand but on the other utterly infuriating and you wonder a bit how the other people put up with her yeah but maybe they don't i haven't read the end oh well you'll see so yasmin isn't the only doctor in her family as well so she's following in her father's footsteps he's a very proper dignified orderly kind of gentleman type he respects hard work and he's completely at odds with his son arif who is yasmin's younger brother he's really He's just a really lost young man um, when we meet him. Like his sister's on this path with, career path with medicine. It's clear that her dad, you know, respects her for following in his footsteps. Like he understands what she is doing and he just gets so frustrated with his son who doesn't really know what his purpose is, what he wants to get out of life. And there's a lot of conflict there. And that's a big part of the story. Um, but the story itself beyond just having incredible characters, it's full of twists and turns. There's so much drama, but there's a lot of depth to the way the families clash and come together. There's not a single moment where you don't think that this is a believable way for the relationship to, to resolve or to, um, to unfold. Anissa is the character that I've left to last. She is Yasmin's mum. She's probably my favourite character She's the member of the family who seems most at home with her Bengali roots. Um, she, she's the one in the family who is always asking, would you like to pray with me? You know, she's very much, she's at home with her religion. She's at home with her, um, with her culture. And you just want to give her a hug the entire time because she's just wonderful. And the story is basically just what happens to these families when they have to come together to plan their children's wedding. Honestly, I absolutely loved it. It was just everything a good book should be. Great story, great characters. And it dealt with some really serious and deep political, social, cultural issues, particularly in the UK, in a really clear and creative way. Yes. And it also does that thing where, like you say, it's a, it's a, it's a story about relationships, but it's not frivolous. It's really weighty, which is incredible. You know, people for many, many years have been maligning women's women's fiction as something that's something quite different from what this is. And this really just puts those people back in their box. I really want to get feedback from male readers on the book. I immediately said to my other half, you I really want you to read this and I want to discuss this with you and that doesn't I don't think that about a lot of books but I'm really interested to know what men think about some of these relationships that would be very interesting and if anyone listening has a, um, a male reader who has read this book in their household or 
is a male reader who has read this, please write to us. Social media or comms at Emirates Lit Fest is the email address. So that's Love Marriage by Monica Ali. What have you brought to the modern love table? Oh, so when we started talking about the topic, I immediately um, thought about Sally Rooney. And but that's not who I brought you today. Nisha Dolan is quite often mentioned in the same sentence as Sally Rooney. And um, her, she's only written one book. Her debut novel is called Exciting Times. And, and sort of Sally and Nisha are together the poster children of the millennial novel. So you couldn't get more sort of modern relationships than what they do. This book came out, I think, right at the start of the pandemic. And in spite of that, it made a huge splash. It was a talk of the town, shortlisted for prizes, etc. It's a story of it's a story of a young Irish woman who goes to teach English in Hong Kong. She leaves Dublin because she was unhappy in Dublin. She blamed Dublin and thought that Hong Kong might be better. And, you know, we've all been there. She thinks everybody in Dublin hates her for absolutely no good reason. Then she comes to Hong Kong. She teaches English to a bunch of young children and does not earn a huge amount, lives in a grotty flat share. And she meets Julian, who is an Eton and Oxford educated British banker in his late 20s. She reckons that they like spending time together because they're not really interested in each other. And they're very, they're very modern. This is where the modernism comes in. They're both doing this very easy breezy thing. They begin a relationship. She moves into his very fancy apartment rent free and the kind of playhouse. She she says in this book, Ava says, I enjoyed his money and he enjoyed how easily impressed I was by it. So Ava is quite mercenary or or slash practical. And she tells us, the reader, I wasn't good at most things, but I was good at men. And Julian was the richest man I've ever been good at. But then things inevitably evolve. And you can sense how Ava isn't quite satisfied. It kind of hurts her ego a little bit that he doesn't want to be her boyfriend. Although we're not quite sure that it's actually touching her heart. Because Ava both overthinks and underthinks everything. (laughs) (laughs) All through the book, she tells herself that she does not care at all about Julian. Because she's so cool and detached. But she's still getting more attached. And she's saying things to herself like oh you know I just wanted Julian's feelings for me to be stronger than my feelings for him I wanted a power and balance in my favor which is um tells you sort of about how she sees the world and then um the trouble really begins when Julian goes abroad for six months so he leaves Ava in the flat And she even has like one of his credit cards. They have this really strange relationship. He leaves her in the flat. He goes to work in London for six months. And then Ava meets and falls for Edith, who is a Hong Kong lawyer who has a lot in common with Julian, actually. She's very wealthy. She's Oxford educated. She is very upper crust. And Ava soon realizes that she can't remain detached with Edith in the same way she can with Julian. And all the while, Edith thinks that Julian is just an absent flatmate. Julian knows nothing about Edith. And time is ticking to him returning to Hong Kong. It's so modern. It's 
this relationship with like Ava and Julia making absolutely no claims on each other. They live in this state of undefined connection and he takes her to see his dad and they don't, he doesn't like introduce her as anything other than his Ava. And, and all of it makes me wonder a little bit if there's like this lack of definition, the reluctance of characters to make claims on each other or be vulnerable, if this is driven by the dating culture with online dating and apps and so forth, so on, if this is the, the result of having a surplus of possibilities that, you know, you don't want to ask too much of someone because if you ask for anything, there will be a thousand people who ask for nothing. Yeah. Or maybe it's maybe it's like the potential of the next swipe to be more perfect than this current person. I, I don't really know, but it felt like modern love in a novel. It sounds great. And I hope you get to ask Dr. Tashiro about that, because I think that's a really that's a really topical question. And when I think about modern love and books about modern love, immediately what comes to mind is, you know, books like, so, so Sally Rooney, for example, and the, the relationship dynamics that you've just described. And I think about, you know, dating apps. I think about the way we communicate now versus how, you know, my parents would have communicated when they were going out. Yeah. And the other day I actually looked at the first ever text exchange just to see between who between me and my person oh you still have that I still have it oh I still have the very first whatsapp messages and I was just I I keep them and I just I think you know now that's how we archive our affections is you know that's just there on my phone and it's not perhaps as romantic as a love letter but yeah I don't know but that's so interesting because you can't actually archive your affections you know back in my day (laughs) in my day people would call you on the telephone and speak with their voices it was insane like completely wild so shall we bring in Dr Tashiro let's do it hi welcome we are so happy to talk to you again I think it's been four years since you last came to the Emirates Lit Fest, and we still remember your sessions. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Paul. I'm really happy to be back and, and talk with you all. I can't believe it's been four years already. Your two books are called The Science of Happily Ever After, and then you wrote Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And before we get into the questions about modern love, I want to ask if there's any common ground between these two books. Does awkwardness have an impact on the happily ever after? Yes. <laughs> there, I think with modern love, they are tightly interwoven, uh, romantic love and, and awkwardness. There is certainly a lot of awkwardness and uncertainty about how to navigate modern dating and, and modern romances. So yeah, there, there certainly is some overlap there. And do you think social awkwardness makes it harder for people to find love? You know, it, it does. Uh, so when we're talking about people who are chronically socially awkward, like an awkward person, there is evidence that yes, it is harder for them to navigate dating. 
um, which is so complex with the social expectations and trying to figure out what the other person is thinking about you and what you should do. Uh, but the good news for awkward people, for the awkward souls out there who might be listening, is that they tend to have really stable relationships and the quality of the relationship is just as good as folks who aren't awkward. So once they're in it, they do pretty good. But um, I think for everybody, what's happened is that the expectations for how we should date and what the procedures should be for advancing a romance, uh, those have become more diversified, which I think is a good, in my opinion, I think is a, a good thing that people can maybe or look for the type of relationship that suits them best. Um, but at the same time, Anytime you have change, of course, you need to figure out, okay, so what's the new set of rules? What's the new set of social expectations for how things go? And uh, I think we're just in the midst, right in the heart of trying to figure that out. And I think that's why it can feel so uncomfortable uh, for a lot of singles or even people in relationships trying to figure out, hey, how do we make this thing work? Do you think we tend to have, we as in all of us tend to have too many items on our wish list for partners generally. Yes, we certainly do. <laughs> One of my favorite activities to do with uh, my undergraduate students when I taught a psychology of romantic relationships course is I'd say, hey, so in your on your piece of paper, I say, just list all the things you want in your ideal partner. And, um, you know, I'd give them, I'd say, just take three or four minutes. They'd inevitably ask for more time. <laughs> and, uh, over the course of about five or six minutes would generate between 20 to 25 different characteristics uh, they wanted. Maybe they want someone tall. Maybe they want someone charismatic, someone with a, it was a medical doctor. There are all kinds of different wishes people could have for their ideal partner. What we would do then is I'd ask for some brave volunteers to volunteer their list. If they felt comfortable, uh, people would do so. And then we'd go through and we'd say, okay, so imagine... You're choosing a male partner, for example. There's 100 eligible bachelors in the room, and they're randomly selected from the population. Let's go through the first three wishes or the first three characteristics on the list. Now, let's say they wanted somebody who's tall, and to them, that means someone who's six foot or taller. Well, in the United States, only 20% of men are six foot or taller. So that means 80 of the 100 men of the eligible bachelors you could choose from would walk out of the room because they're gone now. Um, let's say you uh, now want someone with a college education. Well, you know, you'd have about six, uh, you'd have about 15 to 14 of the other folks walk out of the room because, you know, not everybody has a college education. Now you're down to just three or four people. Whatever wish for a characteristic you had with your third wish almost inevitably left people with a fraction of a man or a fraction of a, a woman. So you really narrow the possibilities uh, very quickly. And I think this is applicable for folks in online dating, because a lot of times folks will set filters for what they want or don't want, and they view those as preferences. But that's a little bit inaccurate because those are actually hard choices where you're not going to get any matches for people who don't meet those criteria. So I always encourage folks to, to think really carefully about what is it that you really want, because if you're haphazard about it, you could very well end up getting a partner without the characteristics that are most important to you. That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't thought of it in terms of how preferences are actually kind of completely rigid when you're looking at filters in, in online dating. They're not 
technically preferences. They are, you know, you're setting rules there. So true. Yeah. I had a friend here in New York. She set her radius to 0.2 miles uh, for eligible matches. And I, I, was, I, uh, I was like, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> you know, she's really narrowing down the range of possibilities on a characteristic, right? Or a wish that's kind of trivial. But we've, we've spoken about um, wish lists. I'd like to talk now about deal breakers. Um, so as you know, we were talking about a couple of fiction books before you joined us. And in the book that I was discussing, Love Marriage by Monica Ali, there, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's going to read it, but I'm not really spoiling anything when I say that infidelity comes up in the book. And I'm interested in this idea because one of the characters criticizes somebody for staying with someone after they've been unfaithful. And I wondered about the science behind what makes infidelity break a relationship and cause a couple to, to actually forgive and and move past it. Like, is there any any science behind that or is that completely subjective? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it's um, not an easy answer uh, to that. <laughs> but um, it's a little bit of both. Let me explain what that means because we're not trying to have our cake and eat it too here. But um, there are certain, there, have been, there has been a lot of research on infidelity. And early on, one of the problems researchers had was getting people to be honest about it. Now they've gotten more clever about how to get people to be accurate about whether they've uh, cheated on a partner or not. And what they found over the years is that, yes, there are things that predict uh, who might cheat on somebody. So there's like personality characteristics, for example, that are predictive of if someone's more likely to cheat on you uh, than, than not. So someone who's what we call in psychology novelty seeking, meaning they always like fun, new things. They're really fun people to date <laughs> because they're really exciting. You're always doing something cool and, and new. Uh, they tend to be high, highly absorbed in the moment, which means they're totally into you. But uh, they also get bored quicker than most people. Uh, they also have lower impulse control. And so there's an example of a disposition or characteristic that makes someone more likely to cheat. Now. That's one way to explain why people cheat. But the inconvenient thing for researchers is that there's this other group where it actually does seem to be a little bit of a whoops, I made a mistake. I was in a circumstance that was high risk. You know, I was traveling. I was out with coworkers. Uh, I had some drinks. And then next thing you know, you've, you've made a bad decision. It doesn't excuse the behavior by any means. Um, but sometimes... It was just kind of an honest mistake. The person feels a lot of regret and the odds are they won't do it again. So for the individual trying to make a decision, I, I think the rough guidance I would give is, is this the kind of person, you know, when you're totally honest with yourself, is this the kind of person where, gosh, they, they make a lot of bad decisions and this would probably happen again. Um, and there's not a the level of remorse or regret uh, there's the other type where you say, this is a really great partner and they did something pretty dumb based on the vows or the agreement we had. And, uh, we'll try to give it a shot, but it's hard to forgive. You know, um, it's a, you made a promise to each other if it's a monogamous relationship. And, uh, that's a pretty big, pretty big line to cross in monogamous uh, relationships. So it is, it's not easy to forgive for sure. 
I, I had a, another question about expectations, but I feel like following the question about monogamy and, and infidelity, it sort of comes off the wrong way. But, <laughs> so, so let's just put that to the side and, and assume that we were talking about something else just, just sure. before this, which, which my question was whether our expectations are partly to blame for failing relationships um, in general. Do we, have we been too conditioned by beautiful love stories and, and Hollywood to have slightly unrealistic views on what a relationship should be in the long term? Yeah, uh, you're totally right about that. Our expectations, I would say by almost any objective standard are unreasonable <laughs> on average. Uh, and sometimes when I talk to folks from uh, different cultures, uh, a lot of times they'll say the same thing, that things have kind of moved in a direction where we expect more and more from this singular relationship, from this one partner. You know, it used to be the case that um, you were kind of arranged for a marriage in, in a lot of cultures. Your folks might give a couple of cows in exchange for someone's hand in marriage or some land or something like that. And you just kind of hoped you got along okay <laughs> with the person. And that was most of the history of marriage. In the late 1800s, uh, during the Romantic era for music and for art and all of those kinds of things in, in Western Europe, uh, there became this notion, this ideal that you should strive for powerful emotions, powerfully felt emotions. That could be sadness or anger, but it could also be euphoria or, or joy. And the interesting thing was, is that the in Romantic era, it became a moral imperative to strive for powerful emotions. So if you were just looking to be content, they actually thought you were kind of squandering your life. And this same attitude spilled over to romantic relationships. And you started to see this idea that for the first time in history, the main reason people married was for romantic love, which, believe it or not, was a, actually kind of a weird thing historically. Now, what happened with that is as it got carried over the years, we now demand that our partner make us feel the pounding heart and the butterflies in the stomach and be attractive, and, but also be financially responsible, also be a good roommate, also be our best friend also be a good parent. And it's fine for people to have some of those expectations. But uh, at, at no point in history has one person been so responsible for another person's happiness. And so, of course, uh, you know, there's just a higher probability that there will be disappointments <laughs> on a daily basis if uh, someone's supposed to be making you feel not just good, but great every single day. Um, you talked about uh, culture, and that's something that I want to pick up on because it's a big part of one of the books that we were discussing is basically it's about two families from very different worlds and different cultures coming together when, when their children decide to marry. And I was wondering about how much shared cultural experience impacts a relationship's chance of success or failure. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, psychological researchers and marital researchers, they're just starting to get into this over maybe the past 10, 20 years. And I think it's a great thing that they are. And so it's a little, a little bit murky still, but some things are popping out that I think are interesting. Um, one is that, you know, we, I think we're kind of been conditioned to believe in this idea that matching is a good thing. Like our dating apps, for example, say, oh, you found your match. 
And the interesting thing about that is that matching doesn't matter as much as we think. So having someone who matches your personality, for example, has no long-term impact on your happiness or your relationship stability. But there are a few things where matching does matter. Uh, One thing is religious beliefs, for example, or spiritual beliefs. And that doesn't seem to be too much of a problem until a couple has kids. And then you start to see this weighted impact of those differing beliefs. Uh, Because, of course, those are very deeply held beliefs and moral beliefs. And if you can't agree then about how to negotiate that with raising a child, you could see how that might be a problem. There was a recent study in the United States. It used to be the case matching on political beliefs didn't matter. (laughs) Now in the United States, it does matter. (laughs) So if you mismatch in political beliefs, negative impact on uh, the relationship satisfaction. So all these things are related to culture, right? A a general sense of belief about a a worldview of how the world works, uh, how you should conduct yourself in the world. And when it comes to other things like race or ethnicity, for example, that the biggest problem couples have when they mismatch in race or ethnicity is other people. (laughs) So kind of the stress of other people being judgmental uh, about things that seems to exert the biggest impacts. But when, you know, the partner who's maybe in a minority group in a certain culture has a strong sense of self, a strong sense of uh, who they are, both racially and ethnically, and then their partner appreciates those differences, uh, those couples fare really well and actually have really interesting, rich relationships. If people really think about, hey, what really matters to me in a romantic relationship and in a romantic partner, does this person have those things? Let's say they're honest, they're a kind person, they're generous. That's those are the kinds of things that really matter. Uh, that you know, you like to go out to a, a big party and they'd rather stay home with a book. That doesn't matter as much if you're open-minded and willing to be flexible to say, "Hey, this is important to my partner," um, and so I'll. I'll I'll do these things and I'll do them with a good spirit. One of the things they found in recent years is that a really important part of marital therapy interventions is what they call an acceptance component, which is that, hey, your your partner, we're always trying to change our partners. And that's just kind of a fool's errand because (laughs) you're not going to do it. Um, They might pretend like they've changed, but, you know, they could get better, but um, you're not going to fundamentally change somebody. And so if you just kind of release that expectation, and say, hey, we, we both need to be our best possible self. And uh, it doesn't mean that you can get away with anything. But hey, we're different people in certain ways. And you're like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to resign myself to these things, but I'm going to be more accepting. It really helps couples out because <laughs> it kind of makes the expectations more flexible. And then the emotional reactions people have when things aren't quite right um, certainly are, are not as intense. That's it from the Boundless Book Club today. Thank you so much to Dr. Tai Tashira for joining us. To everybody listening, you can get in touch with us on comms at emiratesliftfest.com. Let us know what you're reading. Do you have any favorite or worst romantic couples that you want to share with us? Let us know. Stay tuned and we'll be back again in two weeks. <laughs>